South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, it is a beautiful Sunday morning out there, and... uh, (laughs) Looks like we've got a full house already with Greg and Kim and Ross and Shirley all waiting to talk. So, uh, gosh, I've got so many things to talk about, uh, but mainly it's just the fact that it's hot and it's dry and uh, your plants really need your help. So we'll get back to more of my subjects later, and right now we will talk about the things that you want to talk about. And Greg is first in line. Good morning, Greg. Yeah, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, Listening yesterday when you had the dirt doctor on and y'all yes. were discussing the lava sand. Right. Is there any place in San Antonio where you can buy that by, by bulk that you're aware of? I would just, you, you really have to just get on the phone and call around. There used to be all kinds of places that sold all different sizes and grades of lava. I'd probably start with Stone and Soil Depot because they're the biggest ones around, but I any of the places that sell the mulch and compost, I need to get out and make a few calls myself. I wish I had an answer to that question, but uh, I I don't <laughs> at this point. But I'm virtually certain that someone will have it because uh, you know it's just it's very widely used, and it's uh, a lot of people use it as a decorative ground cover in addition to all the benefits it provides to the soil itself. So. Make a few calls, see what you find out. I will do the same, and I'll try to have an answer for you next time if uh, if you haven't been able to locate it. Okay. So the lava sand, can is that fine enough where you can put it down with the broadcast uh, spreader, or do you would I have to put it down by hand? You can put it down with a broad. You can put it down with a broadcast spreader, but it is very heavy. So what you're going to want to do is, in effect, just put a you know fill your spreader like oh, a fourth or a third full. You can't you can't fill it to over overflowing like you can with your fertilizer. But uh, as as long as you know you don't put so much in there that you can't roll that spreader around. Uh, yeah, set it uh, set it fairly wide open. Set your spreader fairly wide open, and it should go through there without any problem at all. Okay. So when you apply it to like to a yard or to turf, uh-huh. because it's just kind of settling on the top of the ground, will that be as effective, obviously, as if you worked it into the soil or over time, will it uh, be more beneficial with the yard? Yeah. Oh, over time, it will be more beneficial and things will build up on top of it. If you had a new yard, I would say put your lava sand down and then kind of rake it in. I don't believe in tilling or double digging it or anything like that. But it will help even just putting it right on the surface of an existing yard or flower bed. Uh, When you follow it up, uh, as you probably will in cooler weather with a little bit of compost or in the case of your flower beds with a little bit of mulch, uh, it'll make it extremely effective and things just get better. And it's only going to be there for the next million years or so, so it's not something you have to repeat unless you just want to add more. Right. So um, I was looking uh, with your store in San Antonio. Do you sell the 40-pound bags of We do. Sand? Yeah, we okay. do. Okay. I'll check that then, and I'll go by the directions on the bags. Well, I don't know that you'll find many directions on the bag, but you ask, and we'll help you with all the information you need always, Greg. And uh, yeah. uh, like I say, check, check Stone and Soil Depot, and um, 
and I, I, I imagine that you will find it in bulk, but if not, I'm sure most of your good nurseries will have it in 40-pound bags, and, uh, and we look forward to helping you, and hope you have a fantastic Sunday. Okay, thank you. You're sure welcome. Thank you. Next in line is Kim. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have three different questions for you. Uh, the first one is my first year to grow tomatillos. Uh-huh. And so I was kind of wondering, once finish their production, is this a plant that's going to make another round in the fall? Or once they're kind of done producing, should I be pulling them out? No, as long as your plants are healthy, they should produce another good crop, maybe even a better crop in the fall than they have in spring and summer. Okay, great. And second question, I had a really strong infestation of um, squash bugs in my uh-huh. squash. So I ended up pulling the squash out, and I've even still seen a couple of the adult bugs after right. I pulled the squash out. Right. Is there something I need to do in the soil to prevent um, whatever eggs or whatever might still be in there from hatching you know, again next year? Or I I think they occur by spontaneous generation. <laughs> I I put <laughs> it, it will very definitely help if you'll put out some beneficial nematodes. Um, before you plant in the spring. As far as what you're doing right now, I don't know of a thing. Of course, I I usually apply beneficial nematodes before I do my spring garden, before I do my fall garden. That means I'll be putting them out probably in late August. And it's not too late to get another crop of squash in uh, this summer. But uh, the squash bugs, one of the important things, I think, is to go through your plants. And do you know what the eggs of the squash bug look like? I do. They'll be on the back side of the leaf and just in a little cluster of brown eggs. I go through them with my fingernail. I'll just gouge out that little chunk of leaf and I just keep a little cup with me that has uh, soapy water, alcohol, or something like that in. And if I get started early, just as I'm walking through my row of squash uh, watering, I'm checking the leaves carefully, and I would say that I usually get 95% of them uh, before they ever hatch out and become a problem. Uh, if they okay. do hatch out when they're in that gray state, the larval state, uh, spinosad soap kills them very, very effectively. Once they get to be the adults, thumb and forefinger is about the only thing that really eliminates them. But um, uh, a little bit of prevention is always a good idea, and uh, that would be the beneficial nematodes. But beyond that, they they occur on so many things in nature, gourds and other things, that you can have your garden pristine and sterile and the blasted things will still show up anyway (laughs) great okay (laughs) take it from um, somebody who's killed many a squash bug uh, what i do in the summer months they hate water apparently and when i'm out working in the garden i'll just take my hose and i will just spray down my row of squash and it seems like the adults all come running up to get on the top leaves and shall we say that's a fatal mistake for them (laughs) <laughs> I, I wear garden gloves and as a lady you used to work for me years ago would say uh he won't have the guts to do that again <laughs> after after this thumb and forefinger application certainly my last question is about the uh kissing beetle kissing is bugs, there a way yeah. that i can yeah the kissing bugs uh, is there a way to get rid of them that is not harmful to my dogs um Spinosad sprayed outside seems to help, but 
they target so many different things. So you will find them in bird's nest. You'll find them in a rat's nest. You will find them anywhere that you have um, mammals or avian creatures. They are not real particular about which kind of blood they are planning to feast on. And I have never been able to eliminate them 100%. As a matter of fact, I killed three of them on my porch last night. But what I do is uh, in I have old wooden doors and screens in front of them because I live in a very old house. But I will go along and just dust some diatomaceous earth just along the sill between the screen door and the wooden door, and that keeps them from getting inside the house. And then uh, outside, I just kill them as I see them. Like I say, I think the beneficial nematodes help keep them under control, but uh, I've never found anything that's 100% effective in stopping them. Okay. Well, thank you for your time and answering my questions. Well, it is always a pleasure to do so, and um, with the uh, with this uh, with the bloodsuckers, the Reduvidae beetles. Um, remember that uh, the the way that dogs sometimes pick them up with humans, it's a matter of you know the beetle sucks the blood, then defecates near the spot. It makes a big itch, and people rub the feces into the wound, and that is how people tend to get it. Dogs can get the uh, disease simply by eating a beetle, and you know how dogs are about, you know, munching on anything Mm -hmm. that's trying to bite them. So uh, just keep in mind when you're handling them, when you pick them up, I always do it with a paper towel, and I always wash my hands very thoroughly after I've disposed of them. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, Kim. Thank you. And goodbye. Let me go and get a break out of the way so we don't get behind. And uh, Ross and Shirley will be my next two callers. But I get to talk to you for a minute about my friends at Medina. Just love the fact that Medina's fertilizers can be used even in the hottest part of the summer. They're 100% organic. The uh, growing green is. Does not have to be watered in. Does not burn or dehydrate or cause any other problems whatsoever. So I don't want to see you out there in the middle of a hot afternoon, but uh, regardless of what the weather's going to be, get out in the morning, get out in the evening, feed that grass, feed your shrubs, feed your bedding plants. They really need it. It will keep them much more productive through the summer months and uh, just keeps things healthier, helps them to tolerate the heat better. Medina makes so many other fine products as well, things like the Soil Activator, the Medina Plus, all the different liquid fertilizers, all the different supplements like liquid seaweed and molasses. Medina is a great company, been right here in our area for well over 50 years now. Look for their fine products wherever you shop for good natural organic products, products from Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. going to be Ross and Shirley and Barbara and Blake, and Ross is up first. Good morning, Ross. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Off to a good start on a hot day. How about yourself? Uh, hope, hopefully I survived yesterday. My thermometer said 108 degrees here yesterday. I, I told several people, I think yesterday was the hottest day so far. 106 was the highest I saw, but... Uh, it's Texas, it's summer, and uh, I'm more worried about water than I am about heat, but that's a whole nother story. What's going on in your yeah. world? Well, I just wanted to pass on some good news to everybody. Um, somewhere I've heard about it or read about it that um, cucumber peelings make an incredible fertilizer. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I have uh, had a 
tenure at the local HEB in Seguin, uh-huh. working in the produce department, of course. Um, we do a lot, did a lot of uh, cut fruit and vegetables and everything. We packaged up, and we could take some of the peelings home if we wanted to. Uh-huh. So I took an entire banana box home full of cucumber peelings <laughs> back in back in the early spring. Uh-huh. And um, one of the big pots, that I, it's an old water trough I use for my tomatoes. I put about, I don't know, probably about five, ten pounds in there underneath the, the top layer of fresh potting soil. And I put in or planted uh, an early girl. And I did it also with my bell peppers and my habanero peppers. Mm-hmm. And all three of those are in full blazing sun and are producing like crazy, even today, still setting fruit. Wow. And, well, you uh, know, the, the secret of the scientific method is that it has to be replicable. I, I, it sounds like a wonderful thing at this point when you've done it two or three times and it has worked every, as well every time, then I'll be 100% convinced that we've stumbled onto, that you've stumbled onto something really, really good. But it sounds great. I, I don't know what would be in cucumber peelings that would make them so special, but uh, obviously it's doing great in this super hot, super dry summer. So uh, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing how it does again in your fall garden and again in your garden next spring. But uh, man, if you've got a good garden going right now, you're one of the few, Ross. So keep up the good work. Well, that's what's, just, that's what's really surprising me. Even yesterday when it was 108 degrees, this tomato plant has never wilted. Wow. And um, <laughs> the, the bell pepper gets about half day shade. Uh, well, after about four o'clock, then it's in the shade, and it's never uh-huh. wilted, and it's still setting fruit. And the habanero, it does the heat wilt, but it pops right back up, and it's got more peppers on there I can eat. Wow. Well, habaneros, I can understand that. No no sane person can eat two at one time. But, yeah. Hey, I really appreciate you sharing with us, and I know there are a lot of other people out there that will be saving their cucumber peelings and trying it in their own garden. So, uh once again, keep up the good work, and, and as always, thanks for sharing with us. Really appreciate it. All right. It. Take care. All right. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Next in line is Shirley. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm just sitting here looking out at a beautiful garden with two happy black dogs at my feet, and uh, <laughs> life is good. Watching a watching a kitty cat absolutely going wild. She uses her arbor out back like a jungle gym, and uh, as a youngster, she just absolutely flies. There's so much entertainment in uh, in animals and nature. I don't know why anybody needs a comedy channel or anything else. A pretty morning like this, you get all the entertainment you need looking out your back window. I just look forward to being out there in a little while. I understand. I sit in our den and look out at a bird feeder we have that's a larger uh-huh. bird feeder. The squirrels try to get to it, but in order to get to it, they kind of have to slide down the side. <laughs> and they, it takes them a while to find decide to do it. And when they do it, some of them slide down and then hang on one paw. So oh, that's he funny. can pull himself up. That's anyway, well, listen, if you, if you want to stop those squirrels at some point, Look for a a birdseed brand that is called Flaming Hot. 
Uh, it's made up in New Braunfels, a good friend of ours that we've known for many, many years, came up with this idea of treating birdseed with super, super, super hot peppers. And his employees have to wear hazmat suits to produce this stuff. But birds don't taste heat. They can eat the hottest peppers. That's why you see those mockingbirds sitting out there eating chili pekins all day long. Birds don't notice hot pepper. And But the squirrels, the raccoons, the possums, all those other things that may want to mess with your bird feeders, they most definitely can't handle it. And uh, mix a little bit of that in with the other seed or feed that. The birds love it. Uh, and again, we see blue jays and titmice and goldfinch and oh, all the different painted bunnings uh, all come to the feeders. But the squirrels don't come around when you've got that flaming hot seed in there. I don't want to get rid of my squirrels. I enjoy <laughs> okay. <watching> them. <laughs> well, as long as they're not tearing up your screen porch or eating your uh, vegetables up, then you you enjoy your squirrels, and I'll send you a few of mine too. <laughs> okay. All right. I have three questions. Okay. And one of them is a few months ago, someone called in about allergies, and you were uh-huh. talking about a honey that was very good for allergies. And of course, Actually, I didn't write it down. Actually, as one of my callers uh, was talking about something called Tupelo honey, T-U-P-E-L-O. And for whatever reason, the flowers of the Tupelo, the bees visit them, and that honey seems to seems to help people with allergy problems. And uh, other people will tell you just good local honey. I'm, I'm blessed to not have much in the way of allergy problems and when I do I take care of them with a product I get from Rhonda's Nature's Way which is simply called seasonal allergy relief. But uh, if you want to try a honey that specifically is known for its anti-allergenic properties, uh, the Tupelo honey is what you want to look for but okay. really any any local honey is probably going to help you. Yeah. Okay, that's T-E-U-B-L-O. T-U-T-U is an up, T-U-P-E-L-O. Okay. Okay, Uh, next question. At the farmer's market uh, about a month, a few weeks ago, I bought a desert rose plant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful plant. I'm going to need to, well, it's it's just a cutting. It's only about six inches tall Uh and has leaves right at the top. I'm going to need to repot it. Uh Yesterday, I really drenched it with water. Mm-hmm. Now, today I'm going to repot it, and I found uh, some fertilizer that's called a mix for cactus. Is Desert Rose a cactus? It's not a cactus, but it, it can be treated pretty much like a cactus in that it likes very bright light, likes to be watered thoroughly, but then wants to get moderately dry between waterings. And I think in repotting, if you can get a cactus and succulent potting soil, that's the absolute best thing to grow a desert rose in. But we just feed them with the has-to-grow plant. It doesn't have to have any special food, and I tend to be wary of uh, any of the chemical synthetic fertilizers, but just the has-to-grow that you use on your houseplants and things will work very well on your desert rose. But if possible, get yourself a little bag of uh, cactus and succulent mix to do your repot. Potting. Okay. Now it says on the instructions I got that it only needs to be fertilized twice a year. No, and it needs to be only... fertilized. If you're using a good fertilizer like has to grow and you want the maximum blooms, fertilize it twice a month. I mean, it would survive, okay. but I don't want plants to survive. I want them to really thrive. And uh, the Desert Rose, a neat plant, comes out of Africa, and there are many different colors available now. But uh, 
I would be feeding at least once a month. And if you really want to encourage maximum growth and flowering and you're using something like has to grow, I'd do it twice a month. Okay. Do I fertilize it now when I when I repot it? You always fertilize it. Anytime. Never a okay. bad time to All use right. a good liquid fertilizer. Okay. Next question. Uh, I guess a couple of three months ago, I think my husband must have made a donation to the Arbor Society. <laughs> so they sent us these twigs. Yeah. One one was a red bud. I mean, a couple of were red buds, uh, a couple of crepe myrtles, and uh, something else that didn't grow. But the red buds, uh, I planted them in a big pot, you know, that cow feed mm-hmm. comes in. Yeah. And the red buds are, are doing fine, and so is the crepe myrtle. Uh-huh. But I don't think it's a good idea to plant them out till the fall when it gets cooler. Is Am I, am I right? Doesn't matter a particle. Uh, that raised up in those uh, containers, that soil is going to get a lot hotter than the soil in the ground. So those trees would love it if you'd repot them this afternoon. It'd be easier on you to wait until it cools down this fall, but the plants don't care. <laughs> As long as you're going to be home to water them, um, it's fine to plant them today. Now, I have to tell you, unfortunately, the red buds that they sent you are the northern red bud, not the Texas red bud. So don't be surprised long term if they don't do quite as well as your neighbors do, because I love the Arbor Society, but they really ought to regionalize the plants that they send out, because most of what they send out is no good for our area. Uh, crepe myrtles, if they're good varieties, that's all well and good. But uh, I, I just don't set your expectations too high on the red buds because those are going to be eastern red buds, and they are always somewhat marginal in our area as far as their production. Okay, now what's the name of the – I love the red bud trees. We have a couple of them that are just a mass of blooms. Oh, yeah. Well, the best one – I don't one, know what it, kind they were. Yeah. The best red, the best, rest, rest, best red bud out there – and I know this is, sounds a little strange, but it is a Texas red bud, and the varietal name is Oklahoma. And it usually is produced in California. <laughs> so you want an Oklahoma variety Texas red bud from California. But, no, any of the Texas red buds are fine, but this Oklahoma strain is just one that has a real glossy, shiny leaf, deep pink flowers, far fewer leaf diseases than uh uh, most other varieties, and uh, if you go out and buy one, I would look for the Oklahoma variety of Texas Red Bud. Oh, great, because I plan to do that. And there well, is there is a white Oklahoma Red Bud as well. Everybody loves the deep pink Red Buds, but if you ever want to confuse your neighbors, uh, uh, get a white Texas Red Bud as well. Plant it alongside your dark pink one. It'll be a striking, beautiful combination. Well, that that sounds good. Well, I'm the person that's been calling you about the Monterey Oak that I've been nursing for two years. Right. And I keep watering, but it looks like it's getting the same problem that it's had before. The leaves turn brown on the edge. So yeah. I don't know. I think maybe where it's planted, or I know it's planted wrong because I tried to tell the man he was planting it wrong, but he didn't listen. So uh-huh. I may have to give up on that one. Well, don't don't give up. Uh, let's try and get through a good cooler fall spell and maybe get back to some more rain. Uh, some of our Monterey oaks looked real tenuous uh, after the big, deep, deep freeze, but most of them have actually finally started to come around. So let's try to get through this summer, and then we'll make the decision about whether to keep or toss. 
Okay. Well, I thank you so much for your information. You we know, it's always a pleasure, Shirley. <laughs> thank you much. Have a good day. You do. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. All right. Let's talk for a minute about our friend Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. You know, just about everybody's yards are challenged this summer with the heat, with the drought. It's just tough on plants, and maybe you're standing out there looking and saying, what is going on with my grass? What can I do to make these trees look better? Why are things not blooming the way they should? Well, if you would like somebody to look over your landscape with you and give you some help and suggestions, Sam Centerly's the guy you really should consider. Sam's been doing it always organically for close to 40 years now, and so many people are so pleased with his services. He doesn't do... He doesn't do the the heavy lifting, so to speak. It's not going to trim your trees or mow your yard, but just doesn't take a real skilled person to do that. Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, it will help to have a skilled person, but it doesn't take anybody with as many talents as Sam has to take care of the standard yard work. But when it comes to compost tea application, when it comes to insect and disease control, when it comes to absolutely maximizing the growth and flowering, Nobody's going to do the job that Sam and his crews do. And if you would like some help in your landscape, you need to check out his website, Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, Green Grow Organics. And uh, take a look at all the services. If you think it's good for you, give them a call. Set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. But a lot of people out there, especially this stressful year, are relying on the help and advice of Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening again on a nice, nice Sunday morning out there. Barbara, Blake, Katie, and Pat. Barbara is up first. Uh, Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Good morning. I, I have this place in my garden, in my yard, uh, that is shaded by the house and trees uh-huh. most of the day and okay. about three four o'clock in the afternoon it gets the blazing west texas sun uh-huh. and uh, what can i put there that blooms uh, things that bloom um periwinkles are going to be one of your most colorful plants and they will grow in anything from bright shade to blazing sun i especially like a variety called cora c-o-r-a a few years ago, periwinkles had a real serious disease called phytophthora wilt, but since they've come out with some new hybrids that are very, very resistant to it, there's just not much that bothers periwinkles, and those would probably be number one on my list for a tremendous amount of color and very tolerant of, of hot sunlight. Uh, there's another beautiful plant called Angelonia, kind of like Angel, O-N-I-A, Angelonia. Um, mm-hmm. There's purple, pink, and white. It's a little more upright growing, but it blooms all summer. Uh, the flowers that we call pentas, P-E-N-T-A-S. There's some new colors in pentas out there. There is a red that is so deep red. I mean, it makes the flag look dull by comparison. It's, it's the most beautiful deep red I think I've ever seen. And, of course, they also come white and pink and purple and bicolor. But pentas would be happy in that location. And... Um, those are going to per- be, go ahead. Uh, perennials? Something perennials? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, uh, in perennials, uh, plumbago would be happy there. Shrimp plant would be very happy in that location. 
don't think there's quite enough light for Thryalis, but um, there are uh, there are a number of salvias that would do it there as well. I think your indigo spires, your mystic spires. Uh, there's one called black and blue sage, salvia, uh, let's see, that one is salvia garanitica. Uh, that would do well. I don't think you have enough sun for salvia gregii for any of the woody salvias, but there are about six or eight different kinds and colors of salvia that would be make good perennials. And uh, I like to say uh, shrimp plant is just virtually bulletproof, uh, as is plumbago. And with plumbago, there's a light blue, a dark blue, and a pure white one as well. Um, those would all be good choices in that flower bed. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm sure there are more, but those are just ones that come to mind uh, with a quick thought. <laughs> give me a little time, and I'll come up with some more of them for you. But that'll give you a real good start, and I uh, think you really enjoy it, Barbara. Okay. Thank you so much. You're certainly welcome. Next up is Blake. Good morning, Blake. Hi, Blake. Hello. Hearing. Hello there. Good morning. It's Mike. I'm sorry. Oh, Mike. <laughs> okay. We 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 got it wrong here, but we've got it right now. How can I help? How can I help Mike? Oh, I've got a rookie uh, in there on the board. He's only been in radio for about forty years, so. <laughs> no, it's kind of like Mike. Yeah. There you go. How uh, how can I help you, Mike? Um, I've got real good grass growing, and. A lot of it is real super light green, but it's real healthy looking. Uh huh. And the rest of it's real dark green. I don't know if I need iron or there. Are different. That. There, there are several different things that will lead to a not such dark green color. It can be lack of nitrogen. Can be lack of iron. Can be lack of zinc. Um, it can actually be just that the grass in that area doesn't have as strong a root system. Uh, whereabouts do you live? Um, right in San Antonio, off of West Avenue, Cherry Ridge. Okay. Well, I used to live out in that area. And if you could take a cross-section of our soils, uh, and a lot of times, you know, I hate to tell anybody to get up on the roof, but a lot of times if you get up on the roof and look down at your lawn, you will see distinct areas that are just going to be a lighter color. And what I found uh, digging around in my own yard was those areas that were lighter, weren't as rich green. I either had some rocks much closer to the surface underneath that, or I had what we call a caliche dome, just kind of a finger, big finger bulge of caliche that came up closer to the surface of the ground. And it's just always hard to keep that grass as green as the surrounding grass that's able to get its roots down more deeply into the soil. I, I think, believe it or not, one of the one of the things that will help you most in those areas is this fall when it cools off, put down about half an inch of compost. In the meantime, just a good fertilizer, a little bit of green sand or a little bit of azomite, that's certainly not going to hurt anything. But long term, I think if you will... Uh, this year, spring and fall, in the future, just about once a year, just put a thin top dressing of compost over those areas, and I think you'll find they may suddenly become the prettiest parts, prettiest grass in your whole yard. But I, I don't know whether it's the humic acids. I don't know what all it is about the compost. But for me, it just worked magic on those areas that were a little bit more yellowed. Okay. And one more thing is, is there any way to make those, you know, like the runners, um is there anything to stimulate that? Fertilizer, 
and a little bit cooler weather. You've probably heard me say that plants have what's called a compensation point, and that's how much energy it takes just to stay alive. And anything above and beyond that, they can put into growth, putting on new runners in the case of grass, putting on flowers in the case of many other things. And with, what was it, 108 yesterday or something like that, one of my callers was telling me, the compensation point just gets so high that the plants just right now don't have much of energy left over to grow, much less bloom and thrive or produce fruit. Uh, I've got the worst vegetable garden I've had in years. I usually feed a lot of people out of my garden. and uh, uh, So the weather's really working against you. When it cools off in the fall, uh, it would love the same thing. It would love a little bit of compost over those areas. This will help those runners not only grow out but take root fairly quickly. But there's, unless you've got some pull with the weather in, there's not a whole lot that's going to encourage a lot of spreading when the weather is as hot as it is right now. But uh, St. Augustine will put out those runners on its own. The good fertilizer, Medina, Maestro Grow, Nature's Creation, there, there are several good ones out there. But a good fertilizer will always help. But don't expect a lot of results until we get out of this uh, intense heat. Okay. All righty. Yeah, like I say, it's it's very plush, and I don't cut, I cut it as long as <laughs> I can get it. But there are a lot of people that would be very envious of you just having a nice, thick, lush lawn this summer because this it's been a challenging year. But uh, you you can very definitely green it up, and you're obviously doing a good job of watering. You're all obviously doing a lot of things right if your growth is that good. Um, so keep that up, but the compost will help, some good fertilizer will help, and uh, I'd love to hear back from you a little later in the year and see see how it's working. All righty, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And I just I have to tease. I, I, we've got the most experienced person at the radio station that's helped me out with the engineering today. So get a chance to tease Greg every now and then. I'll, I'll take every opportunity. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Katie. Good morning, Katie. Good, good morning. Good uh, morning. Bob, this is Katie from Kunkin. Very good. I have a couple. I have a couple of tree questions for you. Okay. One is our peach tree. Uh-huh. We have several peach trees in our garden, and one of them has turned yellow leaves. It's a big, it's 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 been well cared for, and it but it's got yellow leaves, and with the with the green vein showing through, uh-huh. and some of those yellow leaves I think have actually been attacked by some insects because now they have brown spots on them. Well, but and that's we were wondering. Yeah. Go ahead. That's it's fairly common when when plants get stressed, then the insect stress can somehow sense that and go after them. Uh, it sounds if the veins are green and the leaf is yellow, otherwise it sounds like a nutrient deficiency. I probably put either azomite or green sand. Azomite has a lot more in it, but it's you know somewhat more expensive. And then I would follow it up with a good fertilizer. When you're using organics, even in the hot hot summer months. Um, it, you're not going to burn anything, but uh, Medina or Maestro Grow or Nature's Creation, those are all great products. But uh, don't expect to see a lot of change. In fact, you're not going to see a lot of change in the leaves until the new growth comes out next spring. But you'll very definitely have a healthier tree, and you will have a, a better fruit crop. If you go ahead and feed now, do it again in about three months, 
And as the weather cools down in the fall, things will very definitely get better. But you're, you're describing a fairly classic nutrient deficiency, and that's pretty easy to take care of, but it's not going to turn around and look different next week or even next month. So you said to put azomite on it? Either azomite, which is just a broad range of micronutrients, or green sand, which is basically uh, iron and zinc. Uh, azomite, okay. you know, it, it's a little better, but it's also a little pricier. But either one of them will help, and then I would give it a good balanced fertilizer. Uh, Medina makes one called Grow and Green. Maestro makes one mm-hmm. called Texas Tea. Uh, Nature's Creation makes one called Premium Lawn Food. Those are all top-quality products. Now, I bought some ch- chelated iron. Chelated iron? Uh-huh. Chelated iron. Would that do the same thing, or is it just to focus only on the iron? It's um, chelated iron. They rarely... They rare, there, there's more than one form of chelated iron, and the one of them that really works costs about $200 for a very small container. So yeah, I, I yeah, <laughs> me either. <laughs> uh, I, it, it's not going to give you the long-term results uh, that uh, something like green sand or azomite will. Nothing wrong with using it, but don't buy any more of it. You're not getting much for your okay. money. It might work really well if you lived in Oklahoma or Tennessee, but South Texas is a Got country it. all into itself, or I should say Texas is a country all into itself, and South Texas is kind of a very special place even within Texas. This is true. So my second question is on a, a mature white crepe myrtle. Uh-huh. So it, I don't know if it's a fungus or what, but it turns, the leaves have turned almost orange. Uh-huh. And and it's done it last year, and I put some fungicide on it and didn't seem to do anything. It's still no. alive, but it's not a pretty tree. Okay, and it's a nutrient deficiency as well. It's not a disease. Oh. But in the okay. case of your crepe myrtle, I would almost bet you that that crepe myrtle is really buried too deeply in the ground. I'll bet if you started digging around it, you'd have to go down six or eight inches before you'd find the main roots coming out from the trunk. And that's what we call the root flare, but... Close to 100% of the crepe myrtles that are sold are already planted too deep in the pot when you get them. And over time, they just go into a slow decline and, you know, either they die or people get tired of them and cut them down. But if you will pull the soil back, and and you're going to find some little fibrous roots, just cut right through those. But get down to where you have exposed the trunk on that crepe myrtle all the way down to where the roots start flaring out from the bottom and that alone is going to make all the difference in the world on that crepe myrtle. Uh, then again, some of the same fertilizer we were talking about for your peach tree will help the crepe myrtle. But I'm going to almost bet you, and I'd love to hear back from you, I'm almost going to bet you that that crepe myrtle's problem started when it got buried really, really, really deeply in the soil probably several years ago. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. I do have one more question. Is one you helped me with in the spring, which was to plant some new potatoes? Yes, uh huh. I did, and I think I got like one potato per plant. Oh wow! <laughs> so, <laughs> I've never done it before, so I wasn't know, knowing what to expect. So I take from your response, I should have expected more. Well, you definitely should. You should have expected probably you know, eight to a dozen plants. Now, if you leave them at the base of the plant only, you know, to make really big potatoes, you'll probably get four or five. But new potatoes, if you harvest them along, golly, you ought to get, 
you know, a, a whole lot more than that. So try it again. Be sure that you're using good seed potatoes to start with. Uh, be sure they're in absolute full sun. And be sure that your soil is pretty rich, pretty full of organic material, and pretty full of nutrients. And let's talk as you go along next spring, and we'll see if we can't get you uh, knee-deep in new potatoes. And I, But I, it's not something I can try again this fall? Well, it, I can almost guarantee you good results in the spring. Uh, you tell okay. me what the weather's going to be this fall, and I'll tell you how good your results are going to be this fall. It's you know it's a little bit of work, and but it's not very expensive. Yeah, I think it'd be great to try to get a crop of uh, potatoes. I'd probably plant them around the fifteenth of September, but if it turns out to be an early fall and it gets too cold too soon, um, production's going to be not so great. If it turns out to be a more typical Texas fall. Then you have a chance of getting some uh, getting some good potatoes this fall. The problem is going to be finding seed potatoes at this time of year. Yeah. But if you're shopping for organic or non-treated potatoes, which you're probably going to have to do at natural grocers or maybe Whole Foods or possibly even go online, uh, if you can mm-hmm. find some good, the, the way your commercial potato grower keeps them from sprouting, I mean, years ago, shopping with my grandparents, you know, you go to the bin of potatoes in the grocery store and half the potatoes on there were trying to sprout. Well, they they stop that from happening now with chemicals, which is very bad. And a better way of doing it, they do what they call flash freezing. They super chill that potato for a very brief period, enough to kill the eyes, but not enough to really damage the potato itself. So uh, you can use grocery store potatoes, but uh, when you get them, you never really know for sure how well they're going to sprout. So uh, at the very least, I would shop for organic potatoes if you can find them. And your most likely places, two places, are uh, uh, natural natural grocers or Whole Foods or Whole Paycheck, right. as some people okay. call them these days. <laughs> okay, good. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for everything. It's always a pleasure, Katie. Thanks for the call this morning. Goodbye. All right, let's get a break in here, and uh, I get to talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way. And, you know, as important as it is to keep your plants healthy, it's a lot more important to keep you healthy. And there's just always something else, especially as we get a little bit older. There's there's things coming along that are going to hold you back. But I personally plan to be climbing mountains when I'm 85 years old and, uh, you know, gardening when I'm 100. At least that's my ambition. And I truly believe that the way to get there is to eat right, to get the proper supplements, and to, you know, avoid some of the problems. Somebody like Rhonda at Rhonda's Nature's Way, she and her staff can help you with the nutritional end of it. And they have the supplements, they have the vitamins, they have all the things you don't get in the, quote, modern diet, and much better quality than you're ever going to find on a grocery store shelf or a chain pharmacy. She also has some natural things that will help you with issues like digestive issues or sleep issues or pain. Let me tell you, some of the curcumin products that she carries, absolutely amazing what they will do for various aches and pains. She also, if you're like most of us and periodically decide you need to drop a few pounds, she has some wonderful products that you can still have some that taste nice and sweet and even gooey that you just crave sometimes, but without all the sugar and without artificial sweeteners, you're just going to find all sorts of quality products. I love the Ultima. That's the electrolyte solution that I take on these hot, hot days to get me through and be sure I stay well hydrated. 
Rhonda has so many wonderful things. Now, you can't go see her today. Both of her stores are closed on Sundays. Family's in church right now, I imagine. But uh, Monday through Saturday, Southside Stores on Southwest Military, Northside Store that I visit uh, is out in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. If you want to live better, and naturally, I would highly suggest that you visit Rhonda's Nature's Way and check out some of the things she has, too, to uh, support your immune system. I, I think that's one thing that has really gotten me through these times when there's so much bad stuff out there for you to catch. Go see my friends at Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, that's going to get us back to gardening now. It's going to be Pat and George and Kathy and Ray, and Pat is up first. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a question. When do purple sage usually bloom? <laughs> the the age-old question, do they bloom before a rain or after a rain? A lot of people will tell you they anticipate the rain and bloom. I don't agree with that. I think they bloom after we've had a good rainfall, and I've seen that borne out, you know, a hundred times. They can bloom any time except the dead of winter. They can bloom any time from about April all the way up until about November, but it will always be following a good rain is what brings them into bloom. So if you're wondering why yours haven't been blooming much this summer, now you know. Well, mine didn't. I don't think they've had a bloom on them this year. Yeah. Until yesterday, I looked out in the backyard because I have them uh, about four big bushes along my fence, and they're uh-huh. just blooming their brains out. <laughs> well, you remember the rain we had about a week or yeah. ten days ago? Yeah. And it's and it's I went, what this? I don't. I really don't think they've had one bloom all year. Well. Uh, This this is the best rain we've had in a long time. But let me tell you something that I have always found very, very interesting. And, you know, people say, well, I water them all the time. But plants know the difference in rainwater. Oh, yeah. I mean, your grass looks better after it rains than it does if you water it with the... (laughs) But but here's here's something real interesting that my business partner and I discovered. Uh, And she grows a lot of... There's a wonderful little uh, rain lily. uh, It's called an oxblood lily that flowers in the fall after the first rain. And you can water the heck out of it, and it'll never have a bloom on it. But when you first get that that good rain, they always come out in full bloom. Well, several years ago, when when we were in a severe drought, and her well was just uh, doing almost nothing, she was hauling water. She was actually hauling water from my ranch to hers and running it through a centrifugal pump, a pump which spins the water around as it pressurizes it and spits it out into the hose. And all of a sudden, a rain lily started blooming when she used that water. And it's been a fairly well-accepted fact that when rain falls, those drops actually spin as they come down out of the atmosphere. And it seems that that... The water actually picks up a certain kind of energy. I don't want to get too technical about the angle of the covalent bonds in water, but um, that that there is something special about rainwater. It probably has to do with the fact that those raindrops are spiraling as they come down. But that's how the plants, uh, that rainwater actually has an energy in it that groundwater doesn't have. So 
You may or may not be interested in that, but I find it fascinating, <laughs> so I have to bore you with it. But uh, that, that's why your purple sage uh, is blooming now and hasn't been to this point. I hope it gets back to blooming very regularly, if you know what I mean. Well, it, it, they have a lot of, or, or at least two of them, have a lot of shade. And mm-hmm. so I know that's a little bit of a problem. Right, and that definitely uh, plays into blooming. it. But yeah. uh, I had 16 people over at my house to play uh, Mexican train dominoes on Thursday, and they weren't blooming then. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I noticed a couple <laughs> people looked out at my French door at my backyard, you know. And then yesterday I look out, and it's, they're just covered. And yep. uh, I went, well, darn. <laughs> he couldn't have done it just a few days well, earlier. Well, <laughs> uh, you were familiar with Murphy's Law. And oh, then, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. It's, and that's what I tell people, you know, about uh, tropical hibiscus, which are among the prettiest flowers in the world, but the blooms only last one day. And so I say plant a party, and your plants will be in bloom the day before and the day after, and you'll have probably nothing the day that everybody's there. But uh such is life. Uh, just take some pictures, and you know, just like the fishermen say, you should have been here yesterday. Should have you should have been here yesterday. I'll just, I guess I'll tell them this morning when I see them at uh, church. You there you go. <laughs> well, take a couple uh, of take of a couple hibiscus, of pictures. Take a couple I of pictures. Have, of yeah. I have a neighbor who has a hibiscus in a pot, big pot, and it's uh, he's got it on a roller thing. And so he takes it in when, you know, in the winter and into his garage and all. But that thing in the pot is about seven feet tall. Uh huh. And he's had it, um, uh, his wife told me uh, he gave it to her when his son was two and he's 15 now. Wow. And, uh, so he's had it that long. And, uh, he takes care of that plant. That's, that's a <laughs> you know. dedicated gardener. I, I work yeah. with a gentleman up in the Hill Country, a wonderful mentor, a wonderful gentleman named Dalton Grimm. And he had giant hibiscus like that that he planted in his yard up in Waring. And every fall, they got dug up and hauled back down to the nursery, and good old Bob put them in pots and cared for them oh. through the winter months. And Alton took them back and planted in his yard the next spring. So, but it's uh, it's it's just like having a little taste of the tropics. I I love tropical flowers. Oh, it's and, beautiful. Uh, it's it's red, yeah. and uh, it, it's uh, I love to see. You know, when I drive by, you know backing out of my driveway and I drive by I love to see it blooming well but, if you uh, want to if you want to give them a little competition look for something called a mallow hibiscus and there are a bunch of new varieties out there these are a perennial hibiscus and the flowers are about oh six to eight inches in diameter you can uh-huh. plant them in the yard and they they don't have a wide selection of colors but there are some beautiful reds but uh, they freeze to the ground in the winter but come back out even that eight degrees we had a couple of years ago didn't set them back at all. They still come back and uh, they bloom off and on through the summer months. And if you want to, if you want to make him a little gorgeous of your giant <laughs> flowers, you go out and find a red mallow type hibiscus. Mallow. And there's some now that have they have beautiful foliage as well. But uh, those are ones that you can not have to worry about during the winter and still have beautiful blooms during the summer. The mallow, you don't yeah. have to. Yeah, M A L L O W. Well, he puts his in the garage, you know, but uh, and then he'll, you know, he goes back and forth, uh, and he puts it. It's kind of right beside his um, 
uh, driveway, uh, and he's got, like I say, it's on a little roller thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it is it is just beautiful when it blooms, you know. Well, and I can't believe he's had it so long in that <laughs> pot. And <laughs> you well, know. You, t- you take care of plants, they'll take care of you, so to speak. I guess so. Well, thank you so much. I just um, uh, was wondering about why this these purple sage were going crazy right now. Well, now you go out and get us another good rain, and the and the blooming will continue. And uh, well, I appreciate I'll, the. I'll uh, I'll work on that. Put put an extra dollar in the collection plate this morning. I w- I was standing <laughs> at my back door when it was raining, looking at it like I'd never seen rain before. <laughs> right. Well, it's good to talk to you, Pat. You have a wonderful Sunday, and I will move on next and talk to George. Good morning, George. Good morning, Bob. How are morning, you this sir. morning? Uh, just off to a good start. Hope your day's going well. I hope so. I uh, heard your co- uh, co- uh, comment on uh, red buds a while ago. Yes, sir. And back on May 20th, I had one put in my backyard. Uh-huh. It says it was a forest pansy mm-hmm. by Rock Ridge. Uh-huh. Is that acceptable for this area? Well, yes and no. It doesn't it won't have the vigor of Texas redbud. Forest pansy is a grafted redbud. Uh and all the ones I've ever seen are grafted on eastern rootstock, which means that they are not going to be as hardy as if somebody gets smart and grafted them on Texas rootstock. But uh, I've seen them do beautifully uh, it's one red bud that I think likes sometimes a little bit of shade, but it gives you, especially in the spring, gives you those deep, deep red-purple leaves and uh, will have the same pretty light pink flowers. So, yeah, uh, forest pansy is, is a pretty red bud. It still doesn't have the toughness that the Texas red bud does, but it'll be a beautiful addition to your landscape. Well, I can believe that. It's in the middle of the yard in full sun, and it yeah. looks awful. Yeah. It just yeah. looks terrible. They do every summer. It doesn't like the heat. It doesn't like the brilliant sun. Don't kill it with kindness. Red buds like to be watered thoroughly, but then they like to dry out a bit between waterings. And an awful lot of people keep the red buds too wet and then wonder why they die. So that tree should, if it's established. That may be a problem. We have been watering it a lot. Yeah, cut back on it. Water thoroughly when you water but never more than uh, once a week or so, and probably less than that if it's been in the ground a year or two. It's been there just a few months. Okay. Well, water thoroughly when the soil's dry. You know, till, when you can stick your finger down in the soil and it feels dry an inch or two down, then water again. But okay. boy, none of this, none of this daily watering. And uh, the tree will appreciate it if you just put your thumb over the end of the hose and spray up and down the trunk and the limbs. It'll absorb a lot of moisture directly through that smooth bark. And that's yeah, actually yeah. gonna. That, that's a great thing to do to help it get really well established. But uh, be careful not to keep the soil too wet, or it will be a problem. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. It's always a pleasure, George. Thank you for the call this morning. All right, Kathy and Ron, hang on just a second. I need to talk for a moment about my friends at the Cedar Eater of Texas. And once again, you talk about an amazing company that came along with a great machine to fill a niche that is so needed in the Texas Hill Country where we have such a problem with the overgrowth of ash juniper, which we call cedar. It just it 
just totally out of hand. It gets so dense that it totally shades the ground and nothing will sprout and grow underneath the trees. Those leaves catch the first half inch of rain that falls, and you know most of our rains are less than a half inch, so it just totally shuts off moisture getting to the ground. Well, along comes the cedar eater with a machine that cuts the cedar off at ground level, which kills it effectively and grinds it into a nice mulch all in one operation. They can do acres and acres in a single day. And if you have a lot of cedar growing up closely around your live oaks and other trees you want to save, they even send in a hand clearing crew to cut those cedars, drag them out in the open, and once again, their machine turns it into a mulch pile very, very quickly. They also have a bigger machine that can take down big trees that might have died from the freeze or died of drought or oak wilt, take them down safely before they fall on your fences or on your home. Even have a machine that rips mesquite out of the ground, roots and all, to get rid of it completely. Cedar Eater does work for the Highway Department, the Forest Service. Everybody's learning what a wonderful job they do and how effective their work is. You can learn the same by giving them a call. 745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Gardening uh, looks like it's going to be, well, it's changed just a little bit. It looks like... Uh, uh, looks like, well, no, it looks like we've got Kathy and Ray and Joyce and Martha. Those are my next uh, four callers, and I believe we're up to Kathy. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I don't know. I don't know if you can help me. Uh, I think I need a chemist. But, uh, <laughs> How can I try to help? Okay. I have, uh, my husband bought the Medina Has to Grow plant. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have, I've been using it on my, uh, on my patio, on my plants, and it's uh-huh. done great. But uh, I want to do my yard. Can I use this on my yard? You certainly can. Um, I will tell you that has to grow, or the Medina people also make a special product that they call has to grow lawn. Now, Hastro right. Lawn is a little different. You don't use it on anything except your lawn because uh, it will burn if you spray it on your tomato plants. Gee, I don't know how I would know that unless maybe I accidentally sprayed it on my tomato plants I, one time. I have, but, no, I have no plants and no trees. Well, um, the Hastro Lawn is made specifically for grass, but if you want to use the regular Hastro plant, it's also wonderful on your lawn. And I would follow okay. about the, the same, uh, you know, mixing, about an ounce per gallon. And you can actually, you actually buy has to grow plant or has to grow lawn. You can buy it in a little sprayer that's already just to screw under the hose, push a little lever forward, okay, and go it. to work. That, that's, that's what I wanted to know, because I have yeah. one of those sprayers that you can hook to the water hose. Sure. But uh, I don't know how to mix it. Well, just uh, most of the sprayers these days will have a little dial on the top, and it will it tells you how many tablespoons it will mix into each gallon of water that goes through the sprayer. And so right. you will want to, if you're putting your has to grow out with your hose-in sprayer, set it on one tablespoon, and it'll be mixing it exactly right for you. Okay. Yeah, look on look uh, on the top of the it sprayer. Does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much I pour into the container, though. Well, in the in the sprayer, you put it in full strength out of the bottle. 
and then okay. your sprayer dilutes it automatically. You just pour the, you know, has to grow into that, that jar on the bottom of your sprayer, and then you set the dial. Normally, you could set the dial anywhere from a teaspoon to about a cup per gallon, but if you will set it well, to... Well, I could do an ounce. Yeah, to, do an ounce. Yeah. To a, just set it on one, one ounce and go spray. When the jar is empty, fill it up again. Okay, one ounce. Yes, uh huh. And mm. you you will find that you use a fair amount See, of the hasero uh, plant, and you'll find it's a lot cheaper if you buy it in the gallon container rather than in the quart. But uh, well, um, I'm worried about using this up. That's one thing. Yeah, but, uh, I know this container, this sprayer, holds twelve ounces, and I thought, well, you know, how much am I going to spray? <laughs> right. Well, virtually every sprayer that's come out within the past probably every 10 years is this what we call a siphoning proportioning sprayer, and you just set the dial for how much you want it to mix. And, you know, it's, it's not something you'd use in the lab to get an exact measurement, but it's perfectly accurate enough to uh, apply to your plant. So just set that little dial on top to uh, one ounce, and uh, I'm sure that if, if you can't really figure it out, just take your sprayer by a good nursery. Anybody that's a decent nurseryman will happily set your sprayer for you and be sure you understand how to use it. But it's, it's not rocket science. Once you've done it once, you'll think, gosh, why was I ever hesitant? You just put it on one ounce per gallon and do rinse your sprayer when you get through spraying. Right, but, um, exactly. It's, yeah, that, that sprayer should last you for years and years. Well, it's only been used once before, so <laughs> I need it. I need to get to using it. <laughs> yes, ma'am, you do. Okay, but it, this won't burn my... Okay, should I water the grass first or not? With the Hasegro lawn, yes. I probably would water it first, and then I'd rinse it afterwards. With Hasegro plant, no need to worry about watering before or afterwards. But the Hasegro lawn, yeah, it would like to go on grass that has recently received some moisture, and then it would be good if you go back and just, you know, wash it off the vegetation when you get through spraying. Right. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. I, so I've been trying to get through for a month, and I am so happy to talk to you. <laughs> well, okay. it is my pleasure. I'm glad you got through this morning. Okay, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Kathy. You have a wonderful Sunday, and uh, Ray is up next. Good morning, Ray. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Um, I have a big grass growing outside my fence line by the sidewalk. And uh-huh. I want to bring it. I want to bring it inside my my yard. Okay. How do I do with it? How do, do I do you, it? You just water heavily along the, uh, the fence line. Put some fertilizer there, and that grass will start growing happily into your yard. It's it's hot and dry out by the sidewalk, but uh, literally, if you'll just uh, do, especially when it's so dry. Focus on watering right along that strip on inside and, you know, put a little fertilizer down there, especially if it's, well, any of the grasses, Bermuda, St. Augustine, or even Zoysia. It'll start growing away from the sidewalk and into your yard. Uh, I, I was thinking more like digging digging it and bringing it out. Uh, you can do that, too, if you if you want to work that hard in the heat. But, uh, yeah, if you do that, you'll just dig little clumps that are about four inches square, and then just, you know, we call them plugs, and then just, you know, go literally plug it into different places uh, 
uh, in your lawn. But uh, in addition, I would just I'd simply water right along the edge more because uh, you really don't have to work that hard to get it moving into your into your yard. But if you want to get it further back into the yard, yeah, digging some little four inch square plugs is is just fine. I would do it in the cool of the evening or the early morning. And you can certainly do it this time of year. In fact, it's better to do it now than it would be in the middle of the winter. But uh, just, you know, dig a little shallow hole, put your new plug down on into it, and just stomp on the top of it. Uh, keep it well watered, and it will take off and grow. Uh, does one grass get, get along with the other grass? Well, you know, one grass is always going to dominate eventually. Uh, if you have a lot of moisture and if you have a lot of shade, St. Augustine, it's going to be the dominant grass. If you keep your yard a little bit drier and it's very sunny, then Bermuda grass is going to be the dominant grass. But there are plenty of yards out there that they're all kind of mixed up. But people say, well, how am I going to get rid of the Bermuda? And I tell them, well, just water and fertilize more and the St. Augustine will take over. And other people say, well, I want it to be all Bermuda. And I said, well, wait a little bit longer between waterings and uh you know, the Bermuda will certainly thrive in a drier condition than St. Augustine will. But uh, most of us are happy just to have any grass growing right now. But So St. Augustine and then Bermuda will get along fine. But then if you want one over the other, you just choose how you're going to water it, and one will dominate. Well, this grass is, is uh, uh, like 12 hours in the, in the hot sun. Yeah, it's probably I, I never Bermuda. Water, I, I, yeah, I never water it. I, I don't do anything to it, and it grows like, grows like crazy. Well, keep in mind that whenever it rains, it probably it's not only getting the rainwater, but the water is running off the sidewalk onto that area. When you look around and you wonder why the grass is always greener on the side of the road than it is in the pasture, it's because it's getting all that rain that ran off the road as well as the rain that fell directly on it. So, uh um, it's, you know, and we've had enough rain to, to keep it looking good. It's unless something changes and, you know, if we go on having these hundred and some odd degree days, uh, it may, it may not stay quite so green, but, uh, um, it's, you can, you can certainly encourage it to spread. You, you think, you don't think it'll die if I dig it out with a shovel and bring it inside and put it in, into the, inside my yard? Well, you're going to have to dig enough to get, you know, a fair number of roots along with it, and then you're going to have to water it probably every day while it gets reestablished. But uh, people do this every day, and it works just fine. It's, uh, you know, you, you'll have to water it and care for it, Ray, but uh, it's going to be happier in your yard than it is uh, out there along the street where it gets very little care. So, uh, but like I say, you have you have to dig a, a good little chunk of soil with it so that you get plenty of roots from the grass and it's going to look bad when you first plant it because it is going to go through some shock but if you keep it watered and you put a little fertilizer on it uh, you've got about a 99 percent chance it's going to grow and do fine so i keep i i, I have to plant it where it's 12 uh, hours of sunlight also because well, what it, it, that's where I, it is right now yeah i i can't see what kind of grass you have uh, St. Augustine grass will grow in the sun or in the shade. So if it's St. Augustine, you can plant it where it gets substantially less sun and it'll do fine. If it's Bermuda grass, yes, it needs 12 hours of sunlight. But uh, 
Um, since I can't look at that grass, I can't tell you which one it is. But if it has a thick runner, if it has broader blades, it's probably St. Augustine, and it'll grow anywhere. If it has fairly thin blades and fairly thin runners, then that's Bermuda grass, and it has to have the, the hot sun. Thank you, Bob. You have a nice day. It's always a pleasure, Ray. Thank you for the call this morning, and good luck with your project. I want to hear how it comes out. Thank you. Thank yes, you. sir. Thank you. All right. Uh, time for us to take a little break here and talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and then we'll be back and visit with Joyce and Martha. But once again, I love Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and uh, I have a lot of personal experience with them. They put the roof on my home about 20 years or so ago, not called them once, not with one single problem. They put the roof on our shades of green. Well, before we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, we'd had another big-name roofing company come out and put a metal roof on, which promptly rusted out. They wouldn't stand behind their warranty, but we got smart. By then, we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. They put on the roof that's been there for years now, and it seems stood up to big hail without any problems. When we built our new groundwater district office up in Bernie, I told the builder and architect, hey, I want a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on this building. They said, oh, no, it would be too expensive. And I said, nope, you call them and find out. Well, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems does new construction as well. Both the architect and builder came back to me and said, wow, I didn't know a really good roof could be so inexpensive. And, of course, we got a beautiful roof on our on our district office up there. I know a lot about roofs, and I know a lot about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And I can tell you, I've had a lot of friends that chose Southwest Metal Roofing Systems and then came back and thanked me for telling them about them. You know, you're also going to save money on your utility bill. You're also going to save money on your homeowner's insurance. There are lots of reasons to dial 822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Looks like it's going to be Joyce and Martha and Ezell. Joyce is up first. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob, and good morning well, to you and Matt and the Garden Girls and Zoomy Kitty. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we say the same to you. It's a beautiful morning out there. It certainly is. Uh, over the years, you've described cinnamon as being antimicrobial against uh, bacterial-type uh, rots and diseases. Correct. And that it works well, and I've used it, and it has. But I came across an article that I found was interesting, and perhaps you know this, but I, I maybe, maybe not. And that is the article said that they noticed that in recipes – Cinnamon was never added in the beginning. It was always added as a swirl or as a topping, whereas in other recipes it was added in the beginning. So they wondered if it had any effect on fungus, in this case yeast. And so what they did was they made a basic bread recipe of just flour, water, and yeast, divided Uh it into thirds, put it in a glass cylinder, and added nothing to one, a half teaspoon of cinnamon to one, and a spoonful, uh, one and a half teaspoons to the third one to see what would happen. And then it showed the pictures of the three and it was, it was noticeable. The difference really? of in 
rising quality. The half teaspoon was noticeable, but not much. But when they used a teaspoon and a half, and I don't know what the whole volume was, but anyway, uh, it was absolutely noticeable, almost about half. So that's not terribly scientific, but they kind of concluded that it might have some effect on fungi also. That is interesting. That is very interesting. Well, I know it has a number of health benefits, and it's been widely studied, and um, it's it's just proof that Mother Nature has some answers and some things that I, I don't bring to mind. I'd have to ask Rhonda what all cinnamon does for you that's good, but uh, as long as you don't load it up with 10,000 calories of sugar at the same time, I, I know it's a good healthy thing to add to your diet, but that's that's really very interesting because I've always known it as something that really works to get soft brown rot and some of the issues we got in orchids, but uh, never thought about it, uh, you know, as as a fungicide as well as a bactericide. But I'll I'll ask a few other people and and see what more we can learn about it. That's that's very interesting, and I certainly thank you for sharing. Yeah, well, it, it that was the only. It wasn't astounding, but it was definitely uh-huh. noticeable. You know, almost about half when they added more. But anyway, enough of that subject. What I what I wanted to know about is uh, bee psychology, <laughs> and that is I have, I haven't seen a honeybee in uh, two years. And the other about a week ago, I was outside and there was one little honeybee coming around and looking around, and it was in my sprinkling or watering can. It was one of those two-gallon, I hate them, watering cans with a little two-inch hole at the top and not anything (laughs) else. Anyway, and it was crawling in that little hole, and I, oh, a bee, and I was so happy to see that thing, and so I was paying attention to it. And a day later, there were two, and a couple of days later, there were four that I could get. So, and then now it's up to eight, uh-huh. but and they're all coming to drink water out. Now, I have, I have terracotta saucers around with rocks and sticks mm-hmm. I have all over the place, all kinds of things trying to attract bees or butterflies or what have nothing. Only this one watering can, which is in the sun. In the <laughs> afternoon, the water gets absolutely hot, yeah. and eventually oh, yeah. they quit coming. And what my question is, I've been moving it like a foot, <laughs> trying to get it into the shade at least. And so far, they they keep coming, but I fished two little critters out that fell in. Yeah. I they, they didn't drown, but it's coming, I know, if I don't see it. And I was just wondering, how far do you think I could move it to get it into the shade? Could I move it like a yard away? Would they still come? I don't want to discourage them, and yeah. I don't know how to get them to accept something else. Well, they they will find whatever is appealing to them. Now, it may be that they like the warmer water. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not an apiatrist or however you talk, call a, a beekeeper. Yeah. But um, I have had a lot of experiences with uh, bees recently, some good, some bad. But um, bees are literally starving out there. Um, Roberta has had a problem with them just absolutely swarming her hummingbird feeders. And to the point that, you know, they're they're. 15, 20, 30 of them on each feeder, and the hummingbirds are literally having to fight their way through the bees to get to the nectar. And talked to a friend of Dr. Kirby's who has helped him with his bees, and he said that the bees would rather be drinking from 
somewhere they didn't have to work quite so hard to get the nectar. And he suggested putting out, you know, basically a butterfly feeder, just a saucer with the sugar water that we give the hummingbirds, but with some sponges or something else. And lo and behold, after about two days, Roberta had almost no bees on her hummingbird feeders, and they were emptying her other, her bee feeder now, like on an hourly basis, she had to go put another pint of, you know, nectar into it. So I would say that if you're really trying to attract bees, you'll want to get it up, you know, where you don't have to deal with ants and things. But um, Yeah, well, that was my next, if you put a saucer, where do you put it? Uh, you put it, you know, out in the sun where the bees can find it. But what I would do is I would take two saucers, you know, one of them substantially larger than the other. I would put my sugar water in the smaller saucer, set it down in the bigger saucer, which I filled with water because ants can't swim. And uh, so, in effect, you're creating a bee guard where the bees can have their nectar, but uh, the ants can't find it and get to it. But um, And hers is out in the full sun too, and they don't seem to mind the heat. They don't seem to mind the fact that the liquid is quite warm. But uh, ants or, or bees uh, very definitely need nutrition and they need water. And feeding them with something like your hummingbird solution gives them both in one place and uh, keeps them from being right up in your face as well. That is a wonderful suggestion to use two saucers. I can certainly do that. And I and the warmth and hers being out in the sun, that answers I don't have to fool with that part of it, no, I don't think. Not at all. Although not at I'm all. I'm gonna move it a little bit because it's in the way. <laughs> and but where and, and where she's what she's feeding him and it's actually something that was sold as a uh, as a butterfly feeder and it has three pieces of sponge in it is what it has in it. And it took about two days for the bees to really find it and where she hung it was oh, maybe 10 to 15 feet away from where her hummingbird feeder that they were swarming the most hangs. And uh, the first day there were two or three on it, and the next day there were five or six on it. And by the third day there were no bees on the hummingbird feeder and about 50 of them on the other one. So it'll take them a day or two to find it, but you can easily put it, you know, 15 feet away from where they were going to water, and uh, they'll find it and they will appreciate it just just, you know, treat them with care because there are aggressive Africanized bees out there. And most of those, even the so-called killer bees, the Africanized bees, are pretty docile while they're feeding. You certainly don't want to disturb their, their hive. But uh, you still want to be careful because Dr. Kirby got one sting a while back and uh, it took him several days for the swelling to go away. And then he had an incident where he got stung four or five times and basically wound up in the emergency room for several hours. So uh, be very careful in dealing with bees uh, because uh, yeah, unless well, you already know about allergies, because some people, for some people that are allergic to them, even one sting can be life-threatening. Yeah, it can be. Well, I know when I picked it up out of the water, I took my finger and picked it up, and it seemed to just be grateful. So uh -huh. that well, part of it and un unlike wasps, you know, a wasp can sting many, 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 many times. A honeybee can only sting once. When it stings, it leaves its stinger behind and basically dies afterwards. So bees don't want to sting you unless they're, you know, threatened in some way. So they're, and even the Africanized ones are very docile when they're away from the hive. So uh, I'm, I'm not surprised that you're able to, you know, let one get on your finger and dry off and fly away. But uh, 
Uh, B doesn't want to sing because that's at the end of its life if it does, but in the wrong situation, they will happily sting you. Now, you had a beekeeper on some time back who said that in the summer that they don't have to use their little wings to get the water out to make a more concentrated sugar solution. Right. And he was saying, uh, what, three to one in the summer, like now with nothing, that maybe uh, one to one or two to one or what? I think, I think about three to one is still about right. We do four to five to one in, uh, you know, other times. But, but right now, probably about three parts water to one part sugar. Uh, would be about right. Okay. Okay. Well, I won't keep you any longer. I know you have a full board of people waiting to talk to you, but I appreciate that very much. That's been very helpful. Thank you so much. Well, it's always wonderful to talk to you. Well, it's our pleasure. We look forward to, to seeing you one of these days. And uh, uh, this coming week's probably not good, but we would love to visit with you about a couple of other things, too, when we have a chance. So, uh We'll look forward to seeing when we see you, Joyce. And in the meantime, you get out and take care of your bees as well as all your little friends. I certainly will. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone calls. Uh, my next two callers are Martha and Ezell. Martha is up first. Good morning, Martha. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Um, so the potato question sparked my question. Okay. I've had potatoes in my raised beds for three or four years and have always had terrible luck. And I thought that the plants are gorgeous, but I always thought that, well, maybe I started them too late. And I was thinking about putting down a big 8-inch PVC pipe with holes drilled in it and throwing my compostables, um, some of them, uh, down in there and watering it in. Does PVC pipe leach toxins? No. No. Okay. It, it, I, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't necessarily drink out of it, but there's nothing that's going to come out of the pipe and into your potatoes that should cause any problems for you. Okay. And then what about growing in... Uh, those galvanized water troughs, cattle troughs, I've got a bunch of those and thought about using those. And they're old and rusty? Uh, yes. Okay, then that's good because the zinc that is in the galvanizing is very hard on plant roots. A new galvanized truck would not be a good idea, trough would not be a good idea. But if you've got an old rusty one, yeah, those are just fine. If you wanted to use a, a new trough, I would either paint it with some roofing sealer or, you know, just line it with a very thin layer of plastic or something like that. But an old rusty trough, no, it'll do very well as a raised bed. Just drill plenty of holes in it so you get good drainage. Uh, I drill some holes in the side as well as in the bottom just to make certain it drains well. Sure, okay. And then the last kind of container is those uh, black plastic molasses that come, that the cattle molasses comes right. in. Right. I know I'd have to paint them because they're so hot. Most people don't. Most people oh, okay. just take them and, and use them, and golly, they're... An awful lot of people in South Texas garden in those. You're right. The soil is hotter in those. But uh, this has been, uh, you know, sort of a summer for the record books. And I, I think that uh, we 
we may be seeing some plants with some hotter roots than they really like, but in the winter months especially, the plants are going to enjoy having a little bit warmer soil. So I would say I'd leave it strictly up to you. And in general, the nursery industry has been using plastic pots for, I don't know, 40 years or something like that. And uh, the plants seem to grow just fine. So I, you can paint them if you want to, but I wouldn't feel like it's mandatory. Okay, thank you very much. Good luck with it, and I uh, sure do appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, next up is Ezel. Good morning, Ezel. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call as always. And, uh, well, as always, thank you for calling. I appreciate uh, appreciate you giving me something to do here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a question. I ran across them. I've heard you talk about diatomaceous earth, DE. Right, right. Great. Well, <clears throat> just a short, just real quick. We hired a uh, exterminator to come out to uh-huh. the house. They exterminated uh-huh. in the yard and everything. And then two or three days later, we saw some ants. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, well. So called them back. So we'll take a picture. Long story short, took a picture. Said, oh, they're carpenter ants. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to use a special treatment that we use on termites. I said, well. really? Does that run? They said two hundred two hundred and sixty nine dollars. Oh yeah, and then they'll say, "Well, well, then we got a special kind of carpenter ant. We didn't know what that was, and the two hundred sixty nine dollar treatment didn't work. So now we're going to get you a five hundred dollar treatment." No, it. Uh, you're a smart man, Zell. The the way that DE kills, it's not because it's a poison. It kills because it's an abrasive, and it gets down. You know, ants don't have blood vessels like. Um, higher animals do they basically their blood is a liquid that's simply held in the body in something called the hemoseal and they've got this hard outer shell that we call an exoskeleton well when they get diatomaceous earth in their joints so to speak it starts cutting it starts abrading and two things happen number one that lets diseases into the ants and number two it causes the ants to dehydrate and die so diatomaceous earth is just as effective on carpenter ants as it is on fire ants. Now, something soft-bodied like a termite is probably not going to work on those guys, but DE should certainly work on carpenter ants. But the problem, of course, is getting it in an area where the carpenter ants are going to get into it. Now, quite frankly, when I have had to treat for carpenter ants, I have used just orange oil and water. And orange oil is a very strong solvent. It uh, it uh-huh. softens the that exoskeleton on the ant, and then many other things will kill it. Um, had a lady friend a few years ago that had uh, uh, carpenter ants in the shutters, the wooden shutters on her home, and I told her, well, uh-huh. mix up some strong orange oil, about you know three ounces, four ounces to a gallon of water, and go spray. Well, another mutual friend who was a builder and a very good one. Uh, told her later, said, oh, said, no, you've got carpenter ants. said, you better call an exterminator. And the exterminator came out. He took the uh, shutters off her home and said, lady, I don't know what you did, but you killed all the ants. You don't need me. So uh, there, there are different ways uh, to go after it. I've, uh, I've had people tell me with carpenter ants, uh, they've used a mixture of uh, the blue sweetener, the aspartame, uh, with a little bit right. of orange juice, because apparently carpenter ants are really attracted to orange juice, and aspartame is a pretty good ant killer. And so that's how they put out little bait traps and got rid of the carpenter ants. But 
I I've never heard of uh, somebody saying that they had to use something different than they did for fire ants unless they just uh, want an excuse to charge you a bunch of money. Yeah. I I found that uh, diatomaceous earth takes care of carpenter ants just fine. Should I just put the powder all the way around the foundation, or should, do do they take it to a nest, or they just walk no. over it and, and then they, kill they just how do they, they yeah they walk through it. And they may pick up a little bit of it on their bodies and take back, which gets other ants. But basically, they it gets them just by coming into contact. Where are you seeing these ants? Where are they causing you concern? Basically, I was sitting on my patio uh, the other day, and I was looking up at the eaves. Uh-huh. And they were they were walking on, on the on the fascia board on the inside. And I tried to follow them to see if I could see where there might be a nest, but I lost them. Yeah. I couldn't find them. Well, I, it's going to be hard to effectively use DE in a situation like that. But get yourself some orange oil. Make okay. you know, make a, a sprayer full and uh, maybe three ounces per gallon, or you probably don't need a gallon. You probably need a quart, maybe three right. tablespoons or three teaspoons to a quart, and just spray right. anywhere you see those ants crawling around. And I'll bet you that's all you have to do to get them under control. You may you may end up making up a quart or two of spray. But uh, I've had very good luck, and uh, even on fruit tree borers, we spray it directly on the bark of the tree, and it goes through the bark and kills the ant without hurting the tree. So um, oh it's, it's good stuff. And, and before I paid anybody a bunch of money, I'd try some orange oil and water, and I strongly suspect that's going to take care of your ant problem, Ezell. Okay, well, I, I have orange oil already. Now, is it like fertilizer, like that has to grow? If I mix it, does it... Uh... Do I have to use it right away? Will it keep no, any period? No, it, 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 will, it will keep, but it will eat the seals out of your sprayer if you leave it in there oh. too long. So probably good yeah. to, to mix it fresh. Listen, I can get Greg to put you on hold if you have further questions, but I'm going to have no, to run all, out. Of, I mean, I think okay. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the call. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening, and uh, oh, let's see here. Do uh, did uh, we've got Steve, and then we've got JT. That's what it looks like. Uh, did Ezel hang on, Greg? Or no, we got all his questions. He said that he was taken care of. All right, that means that the next guy in line is going to be Steve. Good morning, Steve. Hey, good morning, Bob. Hey, a question on drip compensated irrigation tubing. I've had a, a good amount of experience with it the last four years. Uh, have raised beds and gardens with it. But this uh, past week, I had one of the, uh, I have like a laddering part in my garden, and one of the T-pieces, the tubing just popped off, and I thought, that's kind of odd. Uh, Then the next day, I just kind of put it on again, and again, I put the pressure, you know, put the water on, and it popped off again. Have you ever had that occur? It's the only time I've ever had with all the compensated tubing, and it never occurred that it just pops off like that. I've I have not experienced that at all. Do you uh, do you have super high water pressure or anything? No, not any different than I've had uh, you know the last year or two. So not that I've no. noticed. I the of course the hotter it gets, the more flexible that tubing becomes, and that's why we always recommend. And I'm sure you do the same thing, especially in cooler weather. Dip it into some hot water before you try to put that little barbed connector. Uh, into it, and it could be that, uh, again, it's just, it, it is so high heat 
uh, that it may have just softened it up to the point that the pressure that you have was enough to pop it off. A couple of and, and how many years have you have you had it in this particular spot? Oh, probably two or three, at least, at least two or three, maybe a little and, more, four. <laughs> and yeah, time does fly by, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and looking at the connector that is popping off of. Does connector still appear to be in good shape? Because that's the one thing. The the tubing seems to last forever, but those connectors get a little bit brittle after time. Does it does it still look like it's in good shape? It's faded, but it's not broken or anything. Okay. And in popping off, does it always pop off at the same place? Yeah, exactly. It's the uh, I guess the bottom part of the T. Okay. I tell you, I just because I've got so many things lying around my shop waiting to be used, before I got really concerned, I'd probably just put a little uh, hose clamp on that one spot. Okay. The, good... yeah, the, uh, the other option, and if you told me it was blowing off different places around your garden, I would tell you you can very, you can, in fact, you can make your own, but uh, you, could, you could put a little pressure reducer uh, you know, where you hook the hose on, and um, that would almost certainly take care of it as well. But um, I, just because it's easy, I probably would I probably would start with a hose clamp. But if you, if you feel like the water pressure is an issue at all, uh, you, can, you can actually imagine taking, you know, something round in plastic, almost like a poker chip or a little uh, tiddlywink or something like that, you take it and put that right in the end of the female part of the connector that your hose hooks onto. You take your uh, carpenter's drill and you drill, I'm going to say, maybe a three-sixteenths of an inch hole in the middle of it. And you've just created a really effective little pressure reducer that will uh, probably make all the difference. You can go out and spend several dollars for a pressure reducer if you want to. But if the if the hose clamp doesn't solve it or if it starts appearing elsewhere which would tell me you you simply got more water pressure than you realized you can make your own pressure reducer or you could simply put a hose bib in there and then just you know not turn it on full blast you've got to turn it on up to a certain point depending on how long the the run of uh, of the pressure compensated tubing is just to be sure you get water throughout the whole area but uh, I, I, again if it's not a pressure issue I'd, I'd start with a hose clamp if you think it's a pressure issue, either make your own pressure reducer or find some way just to pressure, get, cut the pressure back a little bit. Used to be when, uh, you know, when I first started dealing with sprinkler systems and things like that, city water pressure was usually somewhere around 35 pounds. Uh, now it's more like 75 to 100. Mm. And so in our residential connections, we've got a lot higher pressure than we used to have. So... Um, I'm just looking at both possibilities, and uh, neither one of them should be too terribly difficult for you to correct. Okay, so, some good things to try. And, yeah. and then, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a saws question. I, when I was looking at the website, it said even, uh, you know, once a week watering, but even with uh, irrigation, sprinkling, and um, yeah, so I thought drip irrigation wasn't included with that, but it really didn't delineate just this irrigation so does that, uh, from the saws, mean that I can only use my drip irrigation once a week between, you know, 7 and 11? I, again, you'd have to direct that question to saws. Um, 
I will tell you that in dealing with many things, I find it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. So <laughs> I, I think we probably just better leave it at that. Uh, drip irrigation is a very effective way of watering, but uh, there's some people that do abuse it. And so I'm, I'm not sure uh, what the actual answer is, but you can talk to Karen Guz or Mark Peterson or just about anybody down there, and they'll give you an answer to that very, very quickly. In all honesty, if I had a pressure-compensated tubing set up with about 15 or 20 emitters, I probably would just keep my mouth shut. If I had one with several hundred emitters, I'd call to be sure that I was doing it right. Gotcha. All right, Bob. Well, thank you as always for your answers, and uh, I hope you have a good rest of your Sunday. Well, and I wish you the same, and uh, let me know what you figure out. I, like I say, that has been... I, I've not had that experience at all, but you know when when have we seen 108 degrees? It's it's been a while, and it's certainly possible that it has softened up that little connection to the point that it would be more likely to pop off. But you know, again, a little and and don't over tighten that hose clamp because of course we don't want to crush the little plastic uh, sure. tee. But um, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear back from you how you solve it. I'd, I'd like to know what it is because I'm sure there are plenty of other people out there facing the same thing, Steve. All right. Well, take care, Bob. You do the same. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to, and by the way, we do have some open lines. First time in the show. <laughs> but If you were getting a busy signal earlier, uh, probably be a little easier to get through right now if you want to give me a call, 210-599-5555. And we'll say good morning to JT. What's going on? Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. Always glad to hear what Joyce has to say when she calls. She is a delightful, delightful lady, and um, a very you you know, just just I love thoughtful people. That uh, of course I love just about anybody that loves a garden, but uh, you can tell the people that are really thinking, and those are the ones that ask you the challenging questions. So uh, uh, it's one of the things that keeps me going doing this after all these years. That's one reason I called when I did. She was asking about the concentration for nectar to give to bees, and it's one to right. one. Okay. One sugar. One. Give them the. You just, you give, give them a meal, not a snack. You okay. Like well, I did not know if if you could overdo it with sugar, but I I certainly appreciate knowing that, and that's. Um, golly, that's. <laughs> I guess I guess if they get a sugar high, it doesn't really hurt them. I, how do you get that much? sugar to dissolve uh i know using hot water but uh i find you even two to one and three to one i'm sitting there with the whisk and stirring and stirring and stirring and stirring trying to get it to go into solution do you have any secrets for getting it into solution at that high concentration i just use hot tap water stir it uh yes. stir it regularly use it i can't add the water to the sugar i usually put in the hot water first and then add uh-huh. the sugar stir it as a torch you stir it rigorously with you know, hot water. It'll dissolve one to one, and that's okay. the same way I do. Same way I do two sugars to one water as well. One to one is in the summertime, spring and summer, okay. but in the winter they need two sugars to one water. Wow! And I put it. I use, you know, been been out in the country. I just use uh, oil drain pans, you know, clean of course, but big, big, wide open pan, and that's the one good use for ball moss. I found really put ball moss. <laughs> That's yeah. that's very creative. That's very creative. Yeah. And uh well listen, 
I always appreciate you taking the time, and I'm writing down as we go, so I I won't misspeak again. Uh, but uh, hey, you as always, you've taught me something. So one to one, and I will pass that along. We'll we'll go buy some stock in the sugar company at the same time, <laughs> and probably do well. But uh, you probably would agree what uh, uh, Rick was telling me the other day that uh, that. Bees are literally starving right now that they desperately need some nutrition, and anybody that can feed them will be doing a good, be doing a good thing for the environment. Yeah, it's interesting. Last year I had to feed and, and give supplemental pollen and nectar all summer, uh-huh. and they could have to do it again, but they're getting it somewhere because when you put out the option for them, they'll take the, what they find on their own before they'll take artificial supplements. Yeah. And this year they taking this, this stuff that they're getting it somewhere but i do notice they come in occasionally just for water they'll, they'll go around i've got two bird baths one's concrete one's gas metal bronze kind of stuff uh-huh. and for some reason either what but they'll, they'll go to that bronze steel thing or metal thing instead of the concrete and, that's uh, interesting that's very they, interesting right now they're covering i've got a little hummingbird uh, uh water Fountain kind of a deal, not much of a fountain, but praise uh-huh. water up just a little. Hummingbirds love it. Well, the bees now are deciding that's pretty cool for them, too. <laughs> Your local bee wash, so to speak. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you agree? And what I've always been told in my personal experience um, is that even the Africanized bees, when they're away from the hive, when they're merely out foraging, they're not aggressive unless you're, you know, unless you're doing something really to disturb them that um but and i always tell people if you're allergic of course you probably just shouldn't be doing a whole lot with bees but do you find that even the africanized ones are pretty pretty docile when they're away from the hive yeah even you know when they're feeding they, they won't bother you unless you mash one or something like that yeah but they can kind of tell when you're afraid of them i think you know, so if you go in with the <laughs> idea you're not bother you too much yeah. unless you hurt but the uh, you're talking about the Africanized being aggressive. I took a, a queen grafting course at A&M where they an artificial insemination for queen bees. Uh-huh. I had videos of these little I mean, micro photographs or actually videos, micro videographs that showed that even the, the uh, Africanized bee semen is more aggressive than the, the European honeybees. Wow. And they they will selectively, you know, breed or penetrate an egg cell before yeah. the, the Europeans can. It's, it's amazing how aggressive they can be. So that's why you can get but anyway, I requeen this year and we've got nice little girls all over the place. So. Very good. Very well, good. I'll let you go. Well listen, I appreciate you sharing with us as always and uh you get out and have a have a good Sunday and do good things for the bees. Appreciate the call, Steve. Thank you. Quick question, if I could. You still there? I, yeah, your phone's cutting out on us. Uh, say oh, that again. Tell me about how to do a, a fall crop of uh, new potatoes. Well, you need to wait till it cools off just a little bit. The hard thing is going to be finding good seed potatoes. Potatoes will grow just fine in the fall, but you're always best the the what we in the spring we always get good certified seed potatoes that we know are disease free and haven't been treated in any way to keep them from sprouting. But if you can find good, viable potatoes, uh, just pretty much the same thing. Cut up your 
your mother potato into sections that have at least two eyes, roll them in either rock phosphate or wood ashes, plant them, I plant them about an inch deep, and then just keep them well watered and fertilized. And uh, just like spring, you have the choice. Uh, when they have been in the ground a few weeks, you can start probing around the base of the plant with your index finger and pop out you know, nice little golf ball size or ping pong ball size potatoes. Uh, if you want bigger potatoes, just leave them alone and all the potatoes will form right down at the base of the plant. And uh, you can dig them after the tops freeze back in the fall. But Basically, it's the same thing you do in the spring. It's just a lot harder to find good stock to start with uh, in the fall months. Yeah, all right. Very good. Appreciate the help, Bob. Have a good rest of the day. Well, I appreciate you, and thank you for your help, and you do likewise, and uh, I know we'll talk again. Uh, Greg, I guess we better get a break out of the way here, and when we come back, we've got several people waiting to talk to, like J.T., Clyde, Sylvia, and Johnny. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Clyde, Sylvia, Johnny, and Kit. Clyde is up first. Good morning, Clyde. Uh, yeah, I have a question about that green sand. I hear you talking about it. And uh, how do you uh, apply that? You just basically, it, it has about the consistency of, uh, uh, really, it's fine sand. It's almost like beach sand. And you can oh, yeah? broadcast it. You can sling it out by hand. Uh, put it out okay. just about any way you like it. It is not toxic in any way, form, or fashion. It's also not super long-lasting or, or super fast-acting, I should say. What it is is uh, it's mined. It's taken out of uh, old lake beds and old seabeds as well. And it's just sand that has had you know years and years and years of algae growing on this sand making a thicker and thicker layer and the algaes tend to concentrate uh, uh, the iron and also the zinc which is the main things we're getting out of it so it's not anything that's going to burn or you know cause any reaction with anything else you can use it warm dry cold hot uh doesn't matter whether you fertilized or not it's just sort of an independent product you put out whenever you feel like you have a little iron deficiency or zinc deficiency problem can you put it on your lawn? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, it is, because it is so fine, it doesn't go through a fertilizer spreader real well. So uh, um, hire all the kids in the neighborhood to get out there and just sling it out for you. Because <laughs> it'll take a while. But I'd, I'd start with any areas that, uh, you know, that you have a real yellowing problem. And uh, I would focus on those. And it's, I would say, on average... You'll probably see some response within six or eight weeks, but you're probably not going to see a real big change until your grass starts right. coming out again next spring. All right. So how would you have it like a quarter-inch thick or even that? Oh, no. Not no, even just like, okay. a, like a heavy salt and pepper. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. You're certainly welcome. Thank you for the call. Okay. Goodbye. Appreciate it. Goodbye. Uh, Sylvia's up next. Good morning, Sylvia. Good, good morning. How are you? Off to a good start. How about yourself? I'm doing well too. I'm glad to hear it. I have a couple of questions. Thank okay. you. I have a couple of questions. I bought a plant. It's some kind of ginger cone flower. Uh-huh. It's a purple flower. It's really pretty and it's got long, thin leaves with kind of a dark stripe down the middle. Okay. And I was just wondering uh, it's in a pot. I didn't want to take it out yet. Okay. So I was just wondering what's the care for it. Should I transplant it? I know it's a tuber, but it's probably 
it's probably what they call a torch ginger. And as such, it's not going to be cold hardy. It's one that you're best to right. grow in a pot rather than plant it into the ground. And remember, being root-bound doesn't ever hurt a plant. Gingers love to grow in a root-bound situation. The only time I would tell you you really need to repot it is if it just is drying out so quickly that you just can't keep it watered because it will form, you know, a lot of very fleshy roots. So don't be in a hurry to repot it, but when you feel like you're having to water it every day or twice a day, at that point, move it up to a pot that's maybe two inches bigger than it is now, and uh, they are definitely beautiful. they yeah, I envy the people in areas like Hawaii where they can plant them in their yards because they can be quite spectacular. Yeah, a, but they, a girl told me that she had one and it just bloomed and bloomed and bloomed, and mine is two right yeah. now. Yeah. So I was just wondering, I didn't want to take it out of the pot unless yeah. I only needed to. So how do I know if it needs water? Well, feel the soil like when the soil's <laughs> yeah when the soil when the soil starts feeling dry on the surface, that's your best indication that it needs water. Sometimes things droop just from the heat. Sometimes times things droop from wind. I always tell people if a plant's droopy in the evening in this kind of weather, don't necessarily worry about it. If it's still droopy the next morning, then it needs to be watered. But you can also do okay. the same thing with your index finger when that soil just feels really dry on the surface. Uh, it'd love a, a good thorough drink. Okay, good. The second question is, we have two Meyer lemon trees. Okay. And um, one of them is in a little bit bigger pot than the other. So the one that's in a bigger pot uh, uh -huh. actually has one lemon growing on it. And okay. suddenly about two weeks ago, it just put out a whole bunch of new leaves. The <laughs> okay. other one that's in the smaller pot uh, doesn't have any lemons growing on it. And it hasn't put out any new leaves. So I'm wondering, do I need to put it in a bigger pot? Leave no. it alone? No, I, I would fertilize it a little bit more. If it's, uh, are they getting the same amount of light? Yeah, they're next to each other. They're in the okay. backyard where they get the most sun that they could get. Okay. Um, well, probably one of them's just got a little bit better root system than the other one, but, uh, no, it, um, I, again, go, the only, I tell people the only two times to repot are is if it's gotten so top-heavy it just keeps falling over, or um, if it, like like talking about your ginger, it just uh, gets so root-bound that you just can't keep it watered, then you can move it into a bigger pot, but I don't mm -hmm. think that has anything to do with that. I'd probably increase your fertilizing, maybe on both the lemon trees, and uh, they should Start putting on some new growth, but uh, repotting, no, not necessary and probably not a good idea. Okay, they both had lots and lots of buds on them, but, mm -hmm. you know, most of them fell off after they started blooming, after they started getting little lemons, you know. Right. Except for I had that one that uh, stayed, so <laughs> we got well, a crop of one. This this was a, a weird year, and sometimes lack of nutrient will cause them to drop off. But uh, the thing that got so many, we had some late cold this year, and even though you you could, they didn't really visibly look like they'd frozen, we had enough cold that it froze a little developing embryo in that lemon, and they go mm -hmm. ahead and they get up uh, somewhere between pea size and marble size, and then all of a sudden something chemically says to the tree, hey, there's no seed growing in this lemon, you're wasting your time growing it, and it just falls right. off. And that's what we saw sort of a residual happening this year because we, we had enough 
we had enough cold to do damage the reproductive part of the flower, but it still went ahead and tried to put on lemons, but then dropped them. The good news is that usually once you've had a small crop one year, you get a much larger crop the following year. So if the weather will just cooperate with us, then uh, you can have your own Mm -hmm. lemonade stand next year. And the the last question is, I have some fertilizer. It's supposed to be organic. Mm-hmm. And can I put that like on the lawn right now? Oh, absolutely. Does no, that matter, right? No, organic fertilizers can be used whether it's 110 or 10 degrees, and organic fertilizers do not have to be watered in. They don't really go to work until they get watered, so I'd water at your convenience. Mm -hmm. But it's not like the synthetics Mm -hmm. where somebody better be walking behind you with a hose or it's going to burn your grass up. The the organic, uh, you, you fertilize at your convenience and you water on your next regular watering cycle. And the, one more orchids. I have three orchids that I bought at different times, uh-huh. and I have them outside right now, and they look like they're doing real well. I've been putting fertilizer with, especially for orchids. Yeah, you know it's very very weak. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything else I should know about them? At some point, um, if they are still in that sphagnum moss that many of them are grown in when you get them from mm-hmm. you know the grocery store and places. That moss is not the best long-term material because it breaks down and then the roots start going bad on them. At some point, probably this fall, uh, you will want to repot them into a bark mix. Uh, They usually use Mm -hmm. a western fir bark is what most orchid growers use. So uh, at some point, I will get them out of the sphagnum and into a bark mix for long-term growing. But other than that, you just keep on doing what you're doing. It's... uh, yeah. The, they don't mind the heat at all. They don't want a lot of sun. A little morning sun's fine, but it sounds like they're growing right. well for you. So just right. they're keep growing up. well. One actually has a bloom on it right now. Really? One bloom. Well, but yeah. no. Most so. most of them will form new bloom spikes about next March. Um, some of the ones, especially the ones that have a lot of yellow phalaenopsis in the background, they will sometimes bloom in the middle of the summer. But usually most of the flowers we're seeing are just sort of a holdover from the spring. But uh, by next spring, yeah, you should I, have... I bought this. It was damaged, and it had one flower. And so now I said, hey, I think that thing's growing another flower. So sure enough, it, it opened up. So You rescued it. You didn't buy it. You rescued it from where it was <laughs> right. not getting what it needed. But well, keep I up the good work. Rescues. But Yeah, they, that's a good thing. But they, they do like fertilizer. They don't ever want to get bone dry. The phalaenopsis don't have any built-in water storage capacity, so they take a little more frequent watering than many other kinds of orchids mm-hmm. do. But uh, just keep on doing what you're doing. But at some point, transfer them to bark rather than the moss that they're growing in Okay. Now. Okay. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my have pleasure. Thank you for the call, Sylvia. Bye-bye. Thank you. You Thanks. too. Bye. Uh-huh. Bye. Well, Greg, I guess we better get a break in here, and then we'll be back to some more phone calls. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Johnny and Kit and Bill. Johnny's up first. Good morning, Johnny. Good morning, Mr. Webster. How's it going? It's going off to a good start. How about yourself? Good. I've been up since break of dawn trying to work on my yard. (laughs) Well, I've been up since well before the break of dawn. (laughs) But my wife beat me to it. She's been watering the trees all. It looked like she started at 5 o'clock in the morning. Wow. We have... A couple of cherry, uh, what are they called? Yashino? They're called Yashino cherry, flowering cherry trees. Okay. And one is, was five feet tall, 
Uh-huh. And the deer seemed to have knocked off a foot. And I went ahead and encased it now, so we're still watering it. And the other one doesn't have any leaves at all. It just ate up all the leaves. Is that one dead? Well, the only cherry that really does well long-term in our part of Texas is uh, something called an escarpment cherry. Uh, they grow wild all through the hill country, but I have tried every cherry tree that came along that people said would grow in the heat, and I've never found one that consistently did. So um, if if it were any other tree, I would tell you as long as the bark is green, it has a good chance of coming out. I would also tell you, you know, when you water, spray down the bark as well as the rest of the tree. If you oh, find it... These trees are have uh, brown in them. They're no longer green. They're they're brown. Yeah. They're um, they're the green has uh, they've grown that tall where they're brown. They're about maybe half an inch thick at the trunk, or wow. maybe an inch. So I don't know. I, I'm just wondering yep. when they're going to flower. <laughs> uh, if and and again, many many trees, cherries included, have to have a certain amount of cold weather to get them to form buds. Uh, they're called chilling hours. And mm-hmm. many of the flowering cherries simply have a very high chilling requirement, uh, like 1,200 hours or something, which means that they probably will do okay in Fredericksburg. But in San Antonio area, we average about no, 500. We're, yeah, we're we're, we average, oh, you're in Floresville, so you're even further south. Uh, you average about five to 600 hours. And um, I... I will be I'll be surprised I'll be pleasantly surprised if they flower with any regularity because I think our winters are just too warm in most cases for you to ever get very good flowering. If they're going to flower, they usually flower February or very early March. But most years I don't think we're going to have enough winter chill to set those buds to where they will come out and flower. Sounds like they're big enough, sounds like they're mature enough to flower, but it's going to take a really cold winter. And it doesn't matter, the, the chilling break point, so to speak, is 45 degrees. And 10 degrees is no better than 43 degrees. But uh, we rarely get as much chilling as cherries require in this area. So um, just going to have to wait and see. They're mature enough to, uh, to bloom, but if we get enough of a cold winter, you could look for flowers late February, early March. If we don't get plenty of chilling, then it may be a long wait for flowers. Well, she's also planted six magnolias and ranges of two feet to five feet. And I was wondering how long it took for them to flower because the one, the smallest one, which is about up to her knee, so maybe uh-huh. that's about two two feet, maybe it's the smallest one. That one flowered after six weeks. Uh-huh. So is she just giving it the right amount of water, too much water, it just flowered for her? I, it's, you know, flowering, unfortunately, is sometimes a sign of stress in plants. Uh, if it oh. flowered when she'd only had a, a short while, it probably flowered because of something that the grower did four or five months ago rather than anything that's happened since you have had it. Um, can you tell me what kind of magnolias? There's so many different ones. The, is it we have mini, and then we have something called brown something. Okay, brown brackens, brown probably. Um, yes, they there are some what we call deciduous magnolias that drop their leaves in the 
fall, and then they bloom before they come out in the spring. Uh, and these are, oh, they're uh, as opposed to the so-called southern magnolia, which is an evergreen tree that always blooms, you know, white later in in the spring. Um, your others, they're probably, you know, clonally propagated, so to speak, so they're already mature. Uh, they'll just, and, and they can flower any time, but uh, people call them tulip trees. Again, they just, they need a fairly chilly winter, and when they flower, it typically will be around February or March before they put on uh, their their spring growth. So I think what you have are more the deciduous magnolias than the evergreen ones. So uh, they probably came out of California. Flowering this time of year is just due to the weather they have back there on a regular basis. And uh, they actually do fairly well here. You'll have to, if I were going to tell you where to plant, then the ideal place would be sun in the morning, but a little bit of protection from the super hot afternoon sun. But uh, look for February, early March is to be their general flowering time most years. Thank you. That's awesome. One more question. Okay. We have... We have three avocado trees, about uh-huh. four feet tall. Their bark is still green all the way through, and they got plenty of leaves. But uh-huh. it looks like the deer just seem to want to eat it, so I'm just going to encase them. Um, is there such thing as watering them too much? Well, that's a great question. The answer is that water doesn't hurt anything. If somebody stuck your head in a bucket of water for 10 minutes, the water didn't kill you. The lack of oxygen killed you. And if you keep the soil so moist uh, that it is, the water's driven all the oxygen out of the soil, that's what hurts or kills plants. Now, where you are, you're in soil that tends to drain very quickly. So you are less, yeah, you're much less likely to ever have a problem with, uh, um, you know, watering too, too much. Certainly not too much, maybe too frequently. But when you water, water real thoroughly, but then when you can stick your finger down in and that sand's dry, you know, a good inch deep or something like that, then it's time to water again. But um, remember, just when you water, do it thoroughly. And uh, like I say, there's no thing, such thing as too much, but there is too often. So just be sure you're letting them dry to the proper point before you water again. Okay, and the avocados do uh, have fruit here in Florida? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the best... Uh, avocado growers in fact the guy who sort of brought avocados to this part of texas was down in divine uh which is not too terribly far from me so you're in a fine area to grow avocados awesome. are, okay some sometimes the fruit will look a little funny <laughs> he'll have something that has a combination dark green and yellow uh outer covering uh, a lot of a lot of them don't look like the big old clavos that you get in the grocery store but they sure do taste good so uh just keep hoping for mild winters, and uh, we look forward to the next avocado festival. Awesome. Have a good one, sir. You do the same, Johnny. Thank you, sir. Uh, goodbye. All right. Winding down toward the end of the garden show here, but time for at least a couple more calls. We'll start with Kit and then Bill. Good morning, Kit. Good morning, Bob. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful morning. I enjoy just about every morning, whether it's beautiful or not. It's uh, I enjoy most if there's fishing later in the day, but that doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I, I feel your pain on that one. Hey, so real quick, so we can get some other people in. So first, um, you know, the bees, um, I put out my, my sugar one-to-one water yesterday as well. But what I do is I put it in a five-gallon bucket and use uh, a hand drill to stir it up real good. 
Um, and you can either use like a wire coat hanger that you've made into like a diamond or they have uh-huh. those paint um, stirrers that oh, you yeah. can put on the end of your drill. Uh, and that stirs it up really, really good. That's a great idea. I I can't imagine needing that much nectar, but this is the kind of year when uh, we may very well do it. But that would be, be a perfect solution to it. Uh, and yep. everybody's got a cordless drill and uh, those little paint mixers are not that expensive. So I appreciate you sharing that yep. suggestion. Uh, so uh, you're, you're buying uh, sugar by the ton, I take it. 50-pound bags, yep. Wow. <laughs> yep. Um, well, go ahead. It's good. It's good for the bees. Um, so my question today, I actually have two questions for today. Um, putting down a walking path down to the fountain, um, yes, in 107 degree heat, um, and we're using a composite granite, but there's a very uh-huh. slight slope. And I uh-huh. thought I remembered at one time you said you could mix something with the, the decomposed granite to make it be a little more sturdy on those slopes. Oh, absolutely. And what you're mixing with it is Portland cement. Now, cement. Do you know, okay. yeah. Do you know the difference in cement and concrete? Uh, nope. Okay, then then you have to be real sure you're buying the right stuff, and it's the stuff that comes in the really heavy bags. I'll tell you that. But cement is okay. the bind. Cement is the binding agent. Uh, cement, if you mix it with sand and gravel, then you get concrete, or if you mix it with sand, you get mortar. And so what you're doing is just a very small amount of cement, and we call it cement stabilizing. It, it will gets hard enough that it will hold the decayed granite in place, but it's not going to give you like a sidewalk kind of surface. So uh, you're going to, and, and unfortunately the smallest bag you can buy is usually about 90 pounds, but on the other hand, it usually is less than $10. So you're going to be able to make a sidewalk that goes from here to you know, south side of town <laughs> if you want to. But I would just, in a wheelbarrow, I would mix it at the rate of about a shovel full of cement to about eight or ten shovelfuls of decayed granite. It doesn't take a whole lot. And like I say, you're not wanting okay. to make something that looks like concrete. You're just wanting to stabilize it and hold it in place. So the main thing is just don't confuse concrete and cement. They're two different things. And what you're looking for is Portland cement. They also, yeah, and, and for other uses, if you ever wanted something lighter color, they actually make a white Portland cement, but in doing decayed granite, I usually just use the standard gray Portland cement, and uh, it works really, really well. And, okay, and you have you're to not gonna you're you not, put it down. You yeah you you don't you don't add water to it. You don't mix it up or anything like that. You okay. just mix your dry cement with your dry uh, uh, decayed granite. Put it down, rake it into place, and even just the little bit of moisture we get in the air in the mornings is enough to set it up. I wouldn't necessarily get out there with the hose and try to wet it down unless you have a very fine breaker nozzle because you end up washing the cement away and then it doesn't set up well for you. So uh, I just put it out and if you add any water at all, it'd just be with a mister or something like that. But normally in a week's time, you've got enough uh, just natural moisture in the air that it will set up just fine for you. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Uh, and then my other question, um, I know that beneficial nematodes help you control fleas and stuff, but uh-huh. like out in outside of our yard in the, the bigger acreage we have, what is something I can put out um, to help control fleas like over in the chicken run and back in that, you know, that bigger area? 
In an area that stays relatively dry, uh, diatomaceous earth, um, and diatomaceous okay. earth is, of course, an abrasive. And back in the old days when we used flea powder on our pets, uh, it was usually about 95% uh, diatomaceous earth and 5% seven or some other toxic things we don't use these days. And the feeling always <laughs> was that the, the DE probably didn't as much as the chemical did as far as controlling the fleas because it's strictly abrasive and it's not going to bother your uh, chickens. In fact, uh, they actually put it in some dog foods. We put uh, out for our cattle, we'll sometimes put uh, DE you know, in the bottom of the feeder and then put the cubes on top of it and the cows will stand there and lick it. They apparently know that it does good things for them. So uh, just be sure you're getting, they're probably going to call it food-grade diatomaceous earth. You do not want the DE they use in swimming pool filters. That is dangerous to breathe and things like that. Your ordinary food-grade DE, uh, you can scatter it around. And uh, again, as long as it stays dry, it will be very effective. Uh, it's pretty inexpensive okay. and certainly won't bother your chickens. Now, okay, I know so, yeah, the chickens, I found a big box of it. Yeah, I, I know the box of it at um, Rainbow Gardens, so I was hoping yeah. that would work. All right, good. Yeah, very good. And Dr. Kirby's here, mm -hmm. and uh, you can, if if you want to call back and ask a question, chickens get a special kind of flea called a stick tight flea. I think it is. I'm trying to get a response, and he's nodding his head. I'm not sure DE will okay. be effective against. You know, he, he's telling me what helps. Okay, sometimes you may ha end up using ivermectin or something like that, but DE's not going to take care of chicken fleas, but ordinary cat fleas that you have in your chicken coop, uh, the DE will certainly take care of them. All right, cool. Well, let's try to get one more person in before you have uh, to get off today. I appreciate that, and that person will be Bill. Good morning, Bill. Hi, Bill. Okay, Bill. Uh, I... Yes, Bill either is not listening to his phone or he uh, lost his connection. Well, okay, well, then that leaves me about a minute and 45 seconds just uh, to remind you of a bunch of things, and then Dr. Kirby will be along with the pet show very shortly. And uh, I tell you what, Dan, I'm going to get you to put on those headphones right there and uh, go ahead and say just a word about controlling those sick-type fleas on the chickens. Well, if you're having to, you know, the... The dust will help for most, like you said, but right. but it won't help for those. We usually use a dilute ivermectin. We'll take ivermectin, maybe just regular ivermectin, and dilute it 1 to 10. Okay. And we use just a drop or two on the back of the chicken once a week or whatever we decide on to get rid of those. And we clean the coops, clean the hay out if you're using hay or whatever you're using, just clean everything, and, and maybe clean it on a regular basis for a while just to, to get it under control because they're, they're tough. I mean, yep. they... They don't just come off, but we've had best of luck with that. Very good. That's why they call them stick tight. Stick tight. And they are and, uh, truly there, and they they will do that. So and they can drag a chicken down. They yeah. can be very bad for the health of the chicken. So you know, we have other types of you know the the ticks will ticks are a problem in mm -hmm. some animals, not so much chickens, but other dogs and things. They're called Ototobius mcninny, just so you know. And it, and <laughs> that's a new word for and me. It's a, <laughs> and it's a tick that'll get inside the ear, inside the ear. Not, wow. not on the outside, but on the inside. Oto, so, Oto as Ototobius, an ear. Ototobius mcninny. It's very <laughs> so, good. Just I'll, you that. <laughs> I'll try to remember that. All right. Well, that's what you're in for another hour of right after news here <laughs> on KTSA. I do appreciate you joining me for the garden show. And uh, uh, do drink plenty of electrolytes if you're out working in the heat out there because it's going to be another scorcher out there. And remember, always water very thoroughly, but not necessarily so often.